Okay, thank you, Dr. Ayler, for the introduction. Um, for those new fellows and old second year fellows that do not know me, um, I am a uh, ambulatory care staff physician. I'm a primary care provider at the James A. Haley VA Primary Care Annex. And I also happen to be an ID doctor, uh, like you all are aspiring to be. Um, and I was a graduating fellow last year, uh, June 2019. So I was sitting right there where you're sitting. Well, not right there because now we have transitioned to this virtual world, but I was there. Um, good news, uh, fellowship, uh, it gets easier after fellowship, um, but bad news, it goes too quickly and you learned so much in fellowships so try to make the best of it okay so um since i my area of interest is hiv primary care uh i i wanted to do something primary care related um and i kind of was wondering if i should do something related to the pandemic or not i bet you know you guys are overwhelmed sometimes with all this information but um i came across you know as a primary care provider I have come across a lot of vaccine questions from my colleagues at primary care and also uh, while I was in the ID clinic for the last six months, I've gotten vaccine questions from people there and other subspecialties and I thought it was kind of a, a good topic to go over uh, since, you know, there's so many frequently asked questions related to, to how to handle vaccines during the COVID-19. Um, so, as an introduction, right? Uh, as healthcare workers or you know healthcare professionals, uh, we are considered essential, and we are essential during this pandemic and in a variety of roles, and not just you know doctors, but all nurses, pharmacists, lab techs. Um, you know every role is important, from the person who collects the sample and interprets it to the person who's looking at at research development for COVID-19 to the person who, who has to wear the PPE and has to manage the samples and take care of the patients to the persons who are developing one vac of a vaccine for COVID-19. And also this little person here, this not little, he's pretty giant. Um, this big person here represents, you know, our role in terms of vaccinations during COVID-19 in my interpretation. So, um, the CDC website uh, is a great resource for all you, um, for all of us, actually, um, during this pandemic. Um, they update it frequently and they have, and I found this a gem uh, called the Interim Guidance for Routine and Influenza Immunization Services during the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, basically, um, it just gives, it, it, it's a good read because it, it raises awareness to some issues that we're going through in terms of this during the pandemic. Um, so, let me see. Uh, to vaccinate or not to vaccinate during the COVID-19 pandemic? That is the question. So do we have any uh, opinions from the fellows in terms of you know, what issues can um, occur if you don't vaccinate? Uh, or if you don't follow through with routine vaccination versus what issues can occur if you do vaccinate or you do bring somebody to a clinic setting to vaccinate. Any any thoughts? Okay. So when you try to um, vaccinate, um, you know, when you get the flu vaccine, they'll always ask you 
you know, have you having fevers, chills, you know, and that could kind of confound with, you know, symptoms of COVID as well. So um, that could maybe slow down uh, uh, uptake of the uh, of other vaccines. And yeah. Thank you. That, that's Harish, right? Yeah. Thank you for your input. So very good. Uh, I have a couple of slides on that coming up. So yes, that's one of the main issues uh, that that um, that we are encountering now that the flu vaccine is here. And we'll touch on that in a few. Anything else? Anything else anybody else can think of? Just bringing them in for a vaccination kind of puts them at risk for contracting other issues in the clinic. It's now that we're rolling into flu season and whatnot. You're only bringing them in for a vaccine. Exactly. Thank you, Cody. So that is another another issue, right? Um, so as doctors, we're always uh, compelled to look at the risk benefit analysis. So the risk associated to bringing them to bringing in them into a healthcare setting, like a clinic or a congregate setting, may potentially expose them, you know, a want unnecessarily to the COVID nineteen. Uh, versus, you know, the benefit of the vaccine, which is kind of a preventive med medicine, um, you know, that doesn't need to be done right away, that can be deferred. So that, so uh, we'll talk about that in a few as well. Anybody else has any other comments before we proceed to the next slide? Okay, so very good. Thank you guys for your participation. So, um, so exactly what we said. So we, as healthcare providers, we want to reduce the transmission of SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that uh, leads to COVID-19 in vaccination settings. So we have to decide if it is safe for one, people to come out, leave their home to a vaccination setting and risk of exposure because of that. Or we also have to decide if they're already in a healthcare or congregate setting, do we want to keep them there longer uh, in order to get this vaccine up to date. However, right, we also have to balance that with the potential consequences of not vaccinating, right? So uh, vaccines have a purpose. So all those, you know, vaccine preventable diseases may, may increase. Also, we may be, be at risk for outbreaks. Uh, we also have to consider the burden of other respiratory, respiratory illnesses that may combine affect their effect with the COVID and wreak havoc like the flu. And then we also have to think, you know, if these patients get a vaccine preventable disease or a respiratory, another respiratory illness, that will also lead to a necessary medical visit or hospitalization, which also increases their risk of exposure. So now that the services are ramping up and now that we're starting to reopen, you know, it may be a good idea to try to to keep the, the the need for immunization in mind in order to protect these individuals and to protect our community from these uh, possible consequences. OK, so. And then other factors to consider is if the patient has an acute illness that may preclude the vaccination, maybe it would, it's not a good uh, time. To, to vaccinate, um, you also have to consider the underlying risk factor that that person may have to develop a severe vaccine preventable illness. Um, other factor to consider is the likelihood that a person will return for a vaccination at a later time and the degree of which a vaccine preventable illness is occurring in the community. I think it's too soon to tell for flu, but you know, 
more to come on that. We'll have to see how bad this year's flu season is. Um, so what should we do about it? So this is a direct message to all the fellows that are doing face-to-face -face visits or rotating at the ID clinic. I'm not sure. I know that the health department is doing telehealth, but uh, how are you guys doing it now? Are you doing some face-to-face -face or, or not at all? Mostly telehealth still, but some patients come in, especially if you haven't seen them for a while, you request face-to-face. Uh, -face. Okay, great. So we, I was in clinic yesterday. We had about four face-to-face -face and, and four not face-to-face, -face, so about 50% now. Okay, good. So 50% of a very small number. Okay, gotcha. So so it's a, so at the beginning, right, when the pandemic hit, we were all kind of 100% telehealth. And at that point, you know, it was easy to say, oh, well, let's defer the immunization to that next face-to-face -face visit. So now we are at the point that we do have some face-to-face -face visits, and we need to be cognizant of that while, when we have that patient there. So I know sometimes clinic gets busy, right, when you're trying to do this hybrid thing of telephone, video, face-to-face, -face, but make a mental note to check that immunizations tab or check that immunization record and if you have a patient face to face whether it be a non-hiv just on our general id clinic panel um you know or in your hiv clinic try to see if there's any way you can optimize that clinic uh visit and avoid any missed opportunity for vaccination um and then you know ensure try to do catch up as well in that visit so this is what Harish was talking about earlier. Um, no, wait, the, I'll get to that in a few. So um, the, the big question now is when to defer routine vaccinations. At the beginning, it was the obvious answer. Let's defer them. But now um, I, I know that, and I know we recently, I saw an email about this, that we're getting questions from like the hospitalists um, about the, you know, when should, when should they get certain vaccines that, they're, you know, they're there, should they get it? Um, and also about, you know, if the patient had COVID or had suspected or confirmed or was exposed and they want a vaccine, should we bring them in or not? So um, uh, the interim guidance I was talking to you guys about earlier uh, breaks it down in terms of a symptomatic person who have tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. So these patients, um, you should re defer a routine vaccination visit for at least 10 days from the positive result. Um, and those are the ones uh, who, you know, they just have to com complete that isolation period. And then the, the guidance on symptomatic patients is for those who've been confirmed with COVID-19 or suspected, then you should defer until the, sorry about that, I just realized that this mouse is going crazy. Sorry about, okay, there. So you should defer the, the vaccine until all the criteria for discontinuation of isolation has been met. And that, and that means all of them, at least 10 days after their symptoms have commenced, at least 24 hours without any fever, without the use of fever reducing medication, uh, improvement overall of their COVID-19 symptoms and that the person is no longer moderately are severely ill because if you give them a vaccine while they're severely ill you may complicate their clinical presentation and then for those who have been exposed 
to a person with known COVID-19, then they should at least wait out the 14-day quarantine period before seeking any outpatient care solely for a vaccine. Um, and that's basically because we want to also avoid exposing the healthcare personnel and other patients in that setting. Um, okay, so now we're going to talk about what Harish was uh, brought up earlier. So considerations for a flu vaccine during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, frequently asked questions. That uh, interim guidance also provides some guidance on the flu vaccine. And then the, the main question you may get from patients is, should I even get vaccinated during the COVID-19 pandemic? So who should get vaccinated? Well, almost everybody. Um, I mean, as long as you're more than six months old, you don't have a major contraindication to it, um, and there's an indication for you to get it, everybody should get their annual flu vaccine. But if, let's say there's a shortage, who should we prioritize? Well, essential workers, the healthcare personnel, um, also those persons at increased risk for severe COVID, those that are in a post-acute or long-term care facility, and those adults who are more than 65 years old, and those persons that are at high risk for influenza complications, and they particularly list uh, children between the ages of six months and five years old, especially if they have a neurologic condition, pregnant women, and adults more than 65 years old. So um, we work at the VA. Uh, most of us uh, do, and or we rotate. And most of our uh, population is above 65 years old. Um, so. I the first thing you find when you go into the VA website is this when you open a new tab in Chrome so we can get vaccinated at the mobile outreach unit um, as well as I think they're they're allowing patients there if I'm not mistaken and uh, we can vaccinate the patients at the at the clinics at the so specialty clinics and also at the CBOX and also at the primary care clinics so let's try to push for that um, in terms of what Flu, I've, I've gotten a lot of questions about what flu vaccines we have available this this year, this season at the VA. Um, so, but, you know, uh, I just want you guys to know that it's very uh, good to get familiar with the nomenclature um, so that when you go to the immunizations tab, you can kind of find out what vaccine they received. So basically we have inactivated recombinated life influenza vaccines, uh, you can have a trivalent or a quadrivalent uh, available, and you can also have adjuvanted cell culture, high dose or standard dose. So it's important to, to understand that it, the flu vaccine is not a, like a one formulation, one fits all kind of thing. It's kind of, there's, there's different brand names and there's different formulations. So uh, be uh, keen to that detail when you are um, assessing a patient um, and deciding what vaccine to give them or what vaccine they already got. So specific guidance for adults um, 65 years old, um, there is data supporting greater benefit of the high dose, uh, the flu zone, trivalent, um, the, the recombinant flu block or the adjuvanted, which was the flu ad trivalent, uh, relative to the standard adjuvanted inactivated um, influenza vaccines in this age group. The most well studied of them, uh, the high dose inactivated trivalent one, was more effective than a standard dose in a large two season uh, randomized control trial. Um, and then this season, the high dose trivalent has been uh, replaced by the high dose quadrivalent. Uh, we also have an adjuvanted quadrivalent available this flu season. 
and I'm not talking about the BI, I'm talking, you know, general updates, and, um, but there is limited data comparing these to the standard dose. Um, the main point is that you should not, do, if you have a patient in the clinic, and you are out of a, a formulation of a certain vaccine, but you have another product that is just as appropriate, use the one that is available. Um, you can use, you know, the standard dose or the recombinant because the main point is get get them vaccinated. Um, because if you delay uh, their visit to in, in order to find a particular product, you may have missed your opportunity, missed your window to get them vaccinated. And you don't know if they're gonna come back at a later time. And that's out on the CDC website. So VA specific flu vaccine op updates and, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I understand that we both have the both quadrivalent standard and high dose vaccines available. Uh, the brand of the standard dose vaccine may vary depending on location. I think last year we had the flu ad, but uh, per my discussions with the, the clinical pharmacists, um, we don't have this one this season. Uh, we got the flu zone and the Florex. Um, so these are the ones that were that I understand we have available at the PACs and as well as, as the ID clinic. Um, and then unless there's been an update that I'm not aware of. And then the patient doesn't have to come to the clinic at the VA or the primary care to get the flu vaccine. They can get it through community care. They can go to the CVS uh, without a referral or appointment. They just have to show their ID. Um, and it shouldn't incur in any cost or copay if they've been receiving care through the VA or through community care provider. And they, I think they can also go to Publix or, you know, there's options for these vets to get their flu vaccine. And then this is uh, what Harish was talking about, is what to expect after the flu vaccine administration. So for the flu vaccine, um, you know, you can expect local injection site reactions, redness, pain, swelling, but you can also expect some systemic reaction, fever, chills, headaches, body ache, which looks like a flu-like syndrome and may cause the recipient to think, oh, do I have COVID? Uh, but uh, general guidance is that usually uh, symptoms related to a systemic reaction will resolve within 72 hours after the vaccination and the patient shouldn't have respiratory symptoms associated to the vaccine. Um, so you should tell the patient, stay home until you're fever free for 24 hours without the use of antipyretics, just to ensure, you know, ex un unnecessarily exposing anybody if they did have COVID. Um, and then things that will make you think of COVID-19 and maybe that patient should go seek medical attention or consult their healthcare provider is fever lasting for more than 72 hours after the vaccine and then new onset of respiratory symptoms, shortness of breath, cough. This is what the guidance suggests. We all know that COVID is, uh, you know, has a myriad of presentations. So as well, clinical judgment will, will you know, play a large role in this. So this is uh, the email I was referring to, uh, hospitalists asking, should they get the flu vaccine uh, if they had COVID-19, uh, that were hospitalized or admitted for COVID-19 and, and now they're at discharge. So, um, for those who have acute illness with suspected or confirmed COVID, you should delay the vaccine until the patient is no longer acutely ill. And if it is delayed, then you should remind them to come back. But, you know, the interim guidance also suggests if they're okay at this charge, um, they're no longer acutely ill, you know, go for it. 
um, because it, it may, you know, you have them there and it may represent a missed opportunity. And then if they come back with the flu uh, later, then it, 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 it's also an issue. Uh, certain concerns with, uh, with this is that, you know, COVID-19 treatment means immunosuppression in a sense because you, they may get steroids, they may get TOSI. Um, and then the concern is that because they were exposed to this immunosuppression, they may have an increased risk for severe flu uh, if they didn't get vaccinated, for example. Uh, but also there is concern that these medications may diminish the immune response and the uptake to the flu vaccine. But still, the, uh, still you know, too soon to tell and also the optimal timing for flu vaccine in these patients is yet to be determined. To be determined, there is no guidance, specific guidance on that. So watch out for that. Um, and just some other specific guidance: those who are caregivers and contacts of high-risk persons, uh, if they do get the live, um, then and they're they're taking care of somebody who's immunosuppressed, then they should at least you know avoid providing care for seven days. And then you know, as you know. Uh, or uh, preferably they should get the inactivated or recombinant. And then this is important as well because we, in our clinics, uh, ID clinic as well as uh, HIV clinics, we have immunocompromised hosts, so avoid giving the life to the immunocompromised person. Do they inactivate it or recombinant? Um, and then I know at some, last year we were, uh, when we had the flu ad, I know we, we, made a point for giving the high dose to the HIV patients. I'm not sure if if that's still kind of the case and, and anybody can chime in if they know the answer to that. Um, but things to consider. Um, and then this is basic, I, I liked the, the uh, CTC website guidance on um, because they have it by age on the schedules, the vaccination schedules. Uh, they have it by age and they also have it by indica indication. Um, and this is particularly important in our clinical practice um, to keep in mind. The yellow means that the vaccine is recommended. The red means that it's not recommended. The gray is the gray zone. It's pretty self-explanatory. Um, and the purple is optional. So uh, in those patients that we're seeing at the HIV clinic, I know at the VA clinic, we're, we're still doing HIV telehealth, but things to keep in mind is that they should get their flu, their Tdap, um, the MMR varicella, if they don't, they don't have immunity and they're, they're, they're live vaccines, but if their CD4 is above 200 and they need it, you can do it. There's a gray zone for the shingles vaccine. Um, HPV, it says 26 years here, but remember that it has been extended to 45. Uh, pneumococcal vaccine as well um, is indicated, as well as a hep hepatitis and the men men meningitis meningitis and you can optionally give men B as well as H flu if they have an indication such as asplenia um, and they're immunocompromised so they do so a lot of people can can get them as well so uh, what is the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on vaccination schedules what what have you guys as fellows bumped into anything any any anecdotes or anything pertinent in your individual HIV continuity clinic? Well, in an HIV continuity clinic, I didn't have, I mean, Sorry, it, it was more difficult to get patients into, um, you know, in-person visits to get the vaccine than, exactly. you know, exactly. that was more difficult. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we are still dealing with. 
Uh, I feel like there's an appropriate gif of how I felt with this issue. And COVID-19 pandemic has bent my space and my time, right? And our space and our time. So basically the timing of vaccines got off, whether to initiate, you know, you know that a person needs a vaccine and you haven't been able to initiate it or whether you started a series and then you got caught in the middle of it. And also the spacing is, is like you, you don't have a place to give the vaccine because we've been forced to kind of shut down a little bit and 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 diminish exposure. So I already told you guys this. Um, what I want you to take away from this is that there is no time like the present. If you have a patient face to face, keep that in mind. It's an opportunity to vaccinate and immunizations best practices. Uh, I rotated at the H at the you know HIV clinic at the health department, and I learned a lot about how to give vaccines, uh, you know, and employ best practices to our HIV patients who need to get up to date in some of the vaccines. So strategies for catching up. Remember, you can always do some simultaneous administration. There is combination vaccines, and it's also important to keep the minimum and maximum intervals of these doses in mind when you are giving. Uh, simultaneous vaccines and, and uh, when you're, you know, giving follow-up visits for vaccines. So simultaneous administration basically is when you administer one vaccine, uh, more than one vaccine on the same clinic day at different anatomic sites and they're not combined in the same syringe. Uh, when you're working with a nurse, I try to ask them to document what vaccine they gave in what arm, because let's say they got a flu in one of them and the pneumonia in the other, and, and nobody documented what, which arm it was, and the patient was flu kind of has, flu vaccine hesitant, and you had to you know move mountains to convince them, and then they develop a local site reaction, and they're like, aha, it was a flu vaccine, and then it might have been you know the pneumonia vaccine. So I try to make them document that so that we can know, especially what vaccine caused a local site reaction, so that the patient you know to clarify with the patient. Um, and then this is a great way to vaccinate those people that need an accelerated schedule, either because they need rapid protection because they're going to travel, which now that with the COVID-19 pandemic, I don't know how much traveling you want to encourage, but also it's great for those who are behind schedule. And the rationale is that the seroconversion rates and the adverse reaction rates are similar to those observed when the vaccines are given separately. So, you know, there's not increased risk of adverse reactions of giving together, um, and they sort of convert just fine as well. Um, so general rules, you can use the live and an inactivated vaccine simultaneously. You can do live vaccines together as well, like MMR and varicella, or uh, live attenuated with um, MMR or varicella if you need to. The important thing is that if they need a second dose, you have to wait uh, four weeks of, you know, they need a second dose of the live vaccine. Uh, you can't, the grace period, which we'll talk about in a few, does not apply. Um, you can do inactivated flu with pneumonia. You could do it with any of the two, Prevnar and Umavax. You could do it with Tdap. Um, that's the one that they specifically mentioned on this website. But if you want to simultaneously administer, you know, other vaccines, like, with, you know, you, I've done with hepatitis B, not just with yellow fever, I've done it with different vaccines and haven't had an issue. So, so if there isn't a, a clear cut exception to, to simultaneous administrations, there's very few, just go for it. Um, and just, I did a good, 
uh, practice with uh, Dr. Morano when I was rotating with her that we would just put down zero, one, two, or six months and see what vaccines the patient needed and and try to figure out that way which one was they were going to get today and which one they were going to get in two months or a month from now uh, based on the the vaccine schedule for each and that way you can um, have a plan going forward. Um, general expect exceptions is that you shouldn't use the menactra, the quadrivalent meningococcal conjugate with the pneumococcal conjugate with Prevnar. Uh, you should at least do the Prevnar first and then the menactra. Uh, food for thought was keen on this. Um, and then if you're going to receive both pneumonia vaccines, you know, as, as you guys know, you've probably done it in the clinic already. You do the Prevnar first, and then you have to wait at least eight weeks uh, prior to doing the pneumovax. And if they did the pneumovax first, then you, you wait like a year to do the Prevnar. Um, uh, combination vaccines, uh, the, the classic example of this that we, are in that we use in clinical practice all the time is the Twinrix. Um, and what I usually do is I get the baseline serology if I'm able to, right? If they have labs, I try to get it. And then we always get the HEP-A IgG, the core surface antigen, surface antibody, which with HEP-C, right? Because we want to rule out co-infection. And that helps me decide if one, if they get, if they need HEP-A, they need HEP-B, or they need both, or they need none. So always make, always make it a, a good exercise to check, you know, their vaccine, uh, immune status to hepatitis, and it will really help you guide your decision in terms of that. Um, and then minimal and maximal intervals is basically, um, there is a minimal interv interval you should wait before uh, administering a dose, a, a dose two or dose three in a series, um, because if you do it in a too close together, it could lead to a suboptimal immune response. But uh, if you do it a few days earlier than the, when their next doses do, it shouldn't have a substantial negative effect. And this has happened to me in the clinic. I mean, they, the patient gets a dose for, let's say, Shingrix two months ago, and they come into the clinic for an unrelated reason, and it's like two or three days till they're due for their next Shingrix. I've allowed it. I've authorized it um, because of the grace period. And basically, the grace period is if you administer the vaccine less than four days uh, before they're due, that dose is considered valid, okay? And day one being the day before their vaccine is due. Um, there are certain exceptions to the grace period, so always look into that. And then also the main issue we're probably gonna run into during the pandemic is that you're gonna have the interval between doses that are longer than recommended. Right now, I have a lot of patients that I started the Shingrix series sometime before the pandemic, and now six months in, they still haven't gotten their second one. Today, we got one, for example, I reviewed his chart, that he got the vaccine in March, and he got his second dose now in October, which is seven months later. And I still gave it to him because even the this doesn't typically reduce final antibody concentrations, one, and the only issue is that you might not attain full protection until you get the total number of doses that you need. So, um, you know, go ahead and make a case for, you know, um, vaccinating them, even if they're lapsed, because you may still confer pr protection. And, and not in all cases, you need to restart a series or add extra doses or add a toxoid. It's very few exceptions. So keep this in mind as well. Um, so basically, when you Google catch-up immunization schedule for adults, this is what comes out. 
Um, I like the catch-up immunization schedule for children. It's very clear-cut. But for adults, I feel like you have to really go into the tabs and look and look and look to find your answer. So um, I found this uh, table in the Minnesota Health Department, um, which is maybe a good resource because it says the vaccine, when the schedule is, the minimum amount of time that you have between dose one and two. And this may help you um, gauge, you know, if you can safely administer that vaccine, if you have that person a face-to-face visit. Um, up to date is also has has the same information, but it's wordy. Um, so for you guys who are visual and like to see it like that, it may be a good way to organize your thoughts. Um, and then plenty of resources uh, to where you can find, you know, how to best vaccinate our, you know, HIV immunocompromised hosts up to date. The IDSA has this, these guidelines. The the CDC also has these guidelines. Sanford has some scattered information, New England. As a fellow, recently graduated a fellow who took her board in December, this is for the second year fellows. Try to figure this out because we had a lot. I remember Nate, I don't know if you guys know Nate. He was traumatized by these questions and he's our what if fellow. So the discussion afterward, after our boards was really lengthy because we had a lot of bizarre scenarios about pregnant women, who who were exposed to somebody who got a live vaccine, stuff, crazy stuff. So try to read this before you take the board and kind of reach a general consensus uh, to what you should do with certain vaccines because there's gonna be a lot of bizarre scenarios with vaccination and immunocompromised and their caregivers and their contacts. So you've been warned, okay? And then, Last but not least, I'm not going to hone in into a lot of this because I'm running out of time, but there is a COVID-19 vaccine pipeline. I, I wasn't unable to attend ID week last week, but I bet they talked about this. And just if you look up COVID-19 prevention, I'm not going to go into detail, but in your Sanford, you can just get a, a general overview of, you know, uh, some trials that are currently underway and the vaccine products that they're using for these uh, vaccines. And then here's like a table of some, you know, some of the trials and what, what type they are and where you can look it up. So if you guys want, you know, want to learn more about that, it's a great resource. Uh, the only thing I wanna mention here is that I've spoken to Dr. Tony and he's informed me that yes, we will be the VA will be participating in a COVID vaccine trial, and we it, the trial we're going to do is the Janssen. I think there was initial meetings in, about this. I don't have the details, uh, but do, if you know if you guys are want to know more, you know Dr. Tony is always open door, and he's always willing to teach and and explain. So, um, so keep that in mind. And my references, you know, the CDC website is our go-to up to date the Sanford. Um, and if you have any questions or comments, go for it. And I hope you enjoy the presentation.